Hello, everybody. It's Mittens with another episode of Supernatural George. Today we are talking about Season 1, Episode 17, Hell House, which continues our themes of are humans potentially the real monsters here? Because, yes, there is a supernatural entity in this episode, but it wouldn't have even existed without human intervention and human belief in this monster's existence. Not only that, but as the stories surrounding this monster change, the monster changes to fit those stories that are being told about it. So the popular conception, like the wider the audience for this monster and the more focused the belief about it becomes, it can be manipulated and changed into whatever. And isn't that an amazing concept to associate with Supernatural that they built into canon with the entire, like, look at everything that's happened since the end of season 14 when God basically said, yeah, I do that. That's my, that's how I make this story happen. I put my will on it and, can change and manipulate it and it changes the whole story. So from inside the story, it starts way back here of being able to manipulate the story from within it. And gosh, isn't that great? So I'm going to have fun talking about this one, but also ghost facers. Personally, what I think is the most interesting thing about this episode though, is that it's written by a writer who this is the only episode of Supernatural he ever wrote. Trey Calloway. And then it's also directed by a director who only ever directed one episode of Supernatural. And it's this one, Chris Long. A writer we've never seen before or again, and a director we've never seen before or again. So this is their only contribution to the entirety of the series, Kind of a really interesting contribution to break the entire universe open in this way with such a meta episode. And I mean, it's only the very beginning of that sort of playing with the story as a story kind of episode. But gosh, this is a good start for it. It's also an episode that crossed over into our reality a little bit. There was a website called The Hellhound's Lair where you could go and interact with the website as it appears on this episode. It no longer exists, unfortunately. It just redirects to the uh, CW website now. But it did exist at the time this episode aired. So, so the crossing over of supernatural canon in our universe, but also crossing backwards, it's another episode where the place they are in their universe doesn't really match up with that same place in our universe. Like the episode takes place in Richardson, Texas, which in our universe is a major suburb of Dallas. It's part of a huge metropolitan area and is in no way like a rural little small town as depicted in this episode. In in, in Richardson, Texas in that universe is like a little rural village almost like campgrounds and wilderness and and abandoned cottages in the woods and Richardson, Texas and our universe is just not like that at all. So <laughs> a reminder that 
their universe is not ours. Our universe is not theirs. Some things in their universe are the same, though. In the record shop, they're looking through all those records and Dean pulls out a Kansas album and obviously the blue oyster cult is referenced multiple times in this episode and I feel bad for the folks watching this on a streaming service instead of on the blu-rays or if you've seen it on the TNT loop you still get the non-streaming music but the joke is that there's several I think I think it's two songs but they're played three different times through the episode of the Blue Oyster Cult playing in the episode. And Dean still doesn't recognize, even though as they drive into town, he's literally singing along with a Blue Oyster Cult song. And yet he does not recognize the symbol at first, and it takes him a while to pick it up. So it's like, (laughs) it makes it doubly hilarious that he doesn't recognize that symbol at first. Because, dude, you were literally singing one of their songs 10 minutes ago. (laughs) So little in-joke for folks who are watching the Blu-rays or whenever you get to see it on the TNT loop again. They're currently in season nine on the TNT loop, so it'll be a while before it loops back around, but when it does, you can see it with the Blue Oyster Cult music again. Yeah, sorry to anyone watching on Netflix or Amazon or any of the other streaming services who missed that joke. Before we get into the episode proper, I'm going to take one more moment to apologize because I'm probably going to yell again about the series finale and meta and how stories change because of our belief in them or our observation of them or our interaction with them and the power of the writer and Chuck's role in the story and um, who controls the story. And it's just, it's going to get scary probably at some points because I'm just going to lose my mind, I think, but we're going to, we're going to try and I'm going to try and, be coherent. Um, I'll give it my best. Good luck to us all. With that said, the then segment is back to the standard that we are used to. The take your brother outside, blah, blah, blah. You know, we're going to find dad. And then we cut to the cold open in Richardson, Texas, two months ago. So two months before Sam and Dean show up, which... We know from an entry in the Hellhounds Lair blog that we see on screen is between June 6th and 14th, possibly one day in either direction. We're not quite sure of how many travel days or whatever it takes them to get there. So, But indicators are that this does take place that week of June, the second week of June, 2006. So these events must have taken place in... April. So flashback scene. We open on four teenagers walking through the woods to this abandoned looking cabin and they are daring each other to go inside. One kid is leading the way to it. He's the one who supposedly was told about it and has this whole spooky story about it. He leads his friends inside who one girl is clearly kind of scared and the one guy is using that against her, but he's telling them a story about this place. The two symbols he shines his flashlight on as they walk into the house are the blue oyster cult logo and the tulpa symbol, which hopefully if you're in this fandom for any length of time, you already know what it looks like. 
since it ends, it ended up on a awful lot of posts that we wanted to make reality, like <laughs> Jessiel confession kind of posts and whatever else it happened to be that we wanted to bring into reality. We put them out there. <laughs> They're everywhere. It's interesting as the guy is telling the story to his friends that they say and, you know, the stories are that and he apparently heard them from his cousin about what happened in this house that the man who used to live there would string up girls in the basement and like, you know, hang them. He's like daring them to go down to the root cellar and check it out. And one guy just totally does not believe he's like, yeah, who's they and where, where do they hear these stories? And, you know, he's like, yeah, right. It don't believe it at all. Too bad. There's more, not more people like him in this universe <laughs> rather than the type of people who feed into the tulpa with their belief in it. If only it took that little to drain the power of a tulpa, just some guy going, oh my God, that's just dumb. Why do you believe that? <laughs> more skeptics, please. But that's not what happens. He's outnumbered three to one. The one guy is not believing. One guy is telling the story and, you know, he doesn't believe it because he made it up. But he's telling them he believes it, and the other two do believe it. Unfortunately for them, this tulpa hasn't really been had any belief poured into it yet, so there isn't actually a creature there yet. What they have is a prank pulled on them by the guy who's telling them the fake story, where a friend of his is strung up like one of the victims for his other friends to find, like... What a jerk. He was just doing this to pull a prank. To him, it was just fun and games. But they're all legitimately scared, except him, including his skeptic friend. They all flee the house. After the title card, two months later, Sam and Dean are driving to Richardson, Texas to investigate what has now become a weird string of weird events. <laughs> rumors and other stories associated with this house they're going to investigate. But before that happens, and while Dean's singing along to Blue Oyster Cult on the radio, he's uh, pranking Sam. He puts a plastic, Sam's sleeping in the front seat. Dean puts a plastic spoon in his mouth, takes his picture, and then cranks the radio up high. And Sam wakes up with the plastic spoon in his mouth and freaks out because, you know, that's an upsetting way to wake up. Sam's upset. He's like, we're not kids anymore. Why are you doing this? Why are we doing these prank wars again? At Dean's like, you know, there's nothing else to do while I'm driving and you're asleep. <laughs> so this episode starts the beginning of a major prank war that doesn't get very far, thank goodness, because they realize that, yeah, like the kids in the cold open, maybe pranking each other isn't the best approach because that's how this whole thing at the Hell House started in the first place. The guy was innocently trying to pull a prank and things got way beyond his ability to control them. People actually started dying because of his, what he intended only as a harmless prank. It wasn't his fault, but he was in way over his head with using the symbols and stuff from the religious textbook that we'll get there. But when you're in way over your head in a prank war, maybe it's time to just burn it all down, <laughs> which is another metaphor that we'll talk about later on. Yikes. 
Dean interrogates Sam as to the details of this case. And Sam tells him pretty much the same thing that the guy told his friends that the previous owner of this house strung up girls from the rafters and that's why it was haunted. The police, by the time they arrived, the body was gone. There was no evidence of any sort of wrongdoing in the house aside from graffiti and nasty stuff like in jars in the basement that was not dangerous or anything, I guess. But Sam gets really squirmy when Dean asks him where he got this information from and why he believes it's worth detouring to Richardson, Texas, because, you know, how credible is this information? And if the police found nothing and they just think it's the kids pulling a prank, why are they going to investigate? Sam found some information and read the stories of the kids who were witnesses to this woman hanging from the rafters. And they seemed credible to him. Dean pushes and pushes for the name of the website where Sam read it. And it was a local paranormal website called hellhoundslair.com. And Dean is just like, yeah, okay. Most of these guys who run these websites out of their parents' basements wouldn't know a ghost if it attacked them. And sadly, that's kind of what we find out with Ed and Harry. But We'll get there. (laughs) It's just funny how Dean is absolutely completely skeptical and absolutely correct to be in this case. So thank goodness for that. He's the, the doubter friend, the one who sees through the story for what it is until it actually becomes real. And he's unfortunately fully aware of that, too. As they're driving, Sam is saying... It was absolutely wrong for us to leave dad. Sam's not here to argue about it. He's just stating his opinion again that it was wrong to leave John. Dean is like, okay, well, I'm not going to argue with that because I believe Dean totally feels the same way, even though he's being the good guy and following the orders. And But he, I don't think he disagrees with Sam here either. He thinks it was the wrong thing to do too. But Sam's like, being practical. Well, we got to find something to hunt, something to do. And this seems like something. And it wasn't far from where we were. So, hey, let's look into it. We're made completely aware that, yes, this is indeed Texas. As soon as they pull into town, they pull up at night to a place called the Rodeo Drive-In. So a play on the fact that it's Texas and Rodeo, but also play on Rodeo Drive and Beverly Hills. So it's definitely not Beverly Hills. It's a little dive joint in the middle of nowhere, Texas, that is supposed to be Richardson, which I don't think I mentioned before, but is actually Jensen Ackles' hometown. That's where he was raised. So I guess that was a shout out to Jensen in some way, but the fact that they made it into this little nothing of a town is kind of hilarious. I bet Jensen thought it was hilarious when they were filming. He's like, dude, no. (laughs) But, you know, it's fiction. We go with it. So they pull up to the Rodeo Drive-In, the Rodeo Drive-In, since it's Texas, not Hollywood. They are playing yet another Blue Oyster Cult song. And they're interviewing three of the people who were in the house uh, that night where they saw the supposedly dead girl hanging from the rafters in the cellar. They each tell a very different story. Like 
the basics of the story are all the same. Like the girl was dead in the basement. It was creepy and they ran for it. But remember, this is like two months later that they're trying to recall all of these details. And it's probably not something they wanted to think about, especially after being told by the police that they'd made it all up and it was all fake. But they remember it. They believed it. But their stories don't really match up because they, I'm assuming, doubt that they believe it. Yet it still happened. And now it's been published on the internet. So everything on the internet's true, right? (laughs) Oh, brother. Anyway, back to the show. The only thing that does match up with their stories, like... They couldn't even agree on the color of the girl's hair or the color of the walls in the house or anything else. They agreed that there were lots of creepy symbols, but couldn't even name any of them. Pentagons and Pentecostals, you know, those common supernatural symbols. (laughs) Uh, The one thing they did agree on, all three of them said in unison sitting together, was the name of the person who pointed them towards that house and who took them there. Craig, the guy who works in the record shop. So Sam and Dean go to visit him. Sam and Dean go into his shop under the pretense that they are reporters for the Dallas Morning News, which gets Craig's attention because he's, you know, studying journalism or writing or something. And he is willing to talk to them. They say they're doing an article on local hauntings and they No, he knows about one, which he refers to as the Hell House. They ask Craig to relate the story to them, and he tells them a much more elaborate version. Like, it sounds practiced, like he's worked out details to make it sound more real, I guess. But he even relates, like, the way the girls reacted to their father hanging them to death. Like, the fear in their eyes or whatever. And it's just like... How on earth could you have known this detail? You're clearly elaborating on that. Even if it was a legend, there's no way anybody could know that. Like, all of these details of what went down in this house. Unless Mordecai Murdoch happened to have left a note or some sort of documents explaining what he had done. It would have just been seven people hanged in a house. You know, there wouldn't have been any story to go with it. But... He comes up with this elaborate story about the Great Depression and they were starving and their crops failed and the father thought it was a mercy to let them, to kill them quickly rather than let them suffer. And all of it is totally fake. When they ask where he heard the story, he says his cousin Dana told him and he didn't believe it at first until he went in there and saw that body and now he's scared to ever go back. He will never go back there because he knows it's real now. And obviously that's a lie because he made up the story. But the fact that the story has already begun to take on a life of its own, that it's escaped the purpose of that original prank, that he kept it up and the story kept evolving as he told it and retold it. It escaped his control and escaped out into the community where his friends reported the dead body and then their story began to change already. Like none of them related the same story to Sam and Dean about what they even saw, let alone what the the story behind the house was. This story has literally taken on a life of its own. 
in the form of a tulpa. But this poor guy, Craig, he doesn't even understand yet just how real his story is going to become and that he's lost all control of how it's told because now it's been put out on the internet and everybody on the internet has their own theories and headcanons about what might actually be the truth of Mordecai Murdoch and his murderous ways in the house and in the telling and retelling and spinning something into something it's not it became more and more horrendous in reality we'll talk about that more later because I'm just totally jumping ahead here man I'm not gonna be able to stop myself in this episode it's so meta it's fun Sam and Dean their next stop is to check out the cabin itself and there's like a rundown barn beside it but there's also telephone lines and electric lines running to the house and there's a transformer right outside on a pole right outside the house that Dean blames for the reason his EMF meter is going nuts. He's not getting an accurate reading at the house because of the electricity going to it or because there's something really supernaturally weird going on. He can't tell. If this really was a house that had been abandoned since the Depression era, would there have been a modern telephone pole with a modern transformer on it right outside? It seems unlikely, but... You never know. I mean, somebody could have run power to this thing, I suppose. But inside, the first thing we see on the wall, on the flaking and peeling walls, is the freshly painted tulpa symbol, reminding us that the story has already begun to evolve and take on a life of its own. Sam's already questioning the, the sigils he's seen because one of the symbols he knows wasn't even used until the 1960s. So even though they don't recognize the Blue Oyster Cult logo yet, Dean recognizes it and Sam doesn't, which is kind of weird. But Sam already recognizes the fact that these symbols are not even from the time period of the person who was supposed to have occupied this house, according to the quote unquote legend told to them. Just as Sam and Dean are about to agree with the cops that there's nothing really here because all these sigils have even been made, painted on the walls recently because the paint's still relatively fresh. It's not all flaking off like the paint underneath it. So they are clearly been painted much more recently. They hear a noise coming from the next room and they wait for the people on the other side of the door to open it and are confronted by Ed and Harry, the hellhoundslayer.com website curators who have come to investigate this supposed haunting. And they've come well-equipped with everything they need, including EMF detectors and thermal scanners and whatever else they've got. All the stuff that Sam and Dean were using earlier in the series that you know, well, I mean, they still have the EMF detector, but Sam mocked Dean's homemade EMF detector, and Ed and Harry have got the high-tech fancy one that Sam and Dean both will mock this time. Right from the start, we're already poised to think Ed and Harry are kind of slightly moronic douchebags. <laughs> They're calling themselves the professionals because they have business cards that 
announce their names and their website. They've got professional credentials. And it's like, that's like one step below what Sam and Dean do making fake IDs and stuff and taking off false identities to investigate. But at least they know what they're doing and they're not stumbling and bumbling into things like putting tulpa symbols on the internet on YouTube or whatever they're doing and making problems for themselves. Poor Ed and Harry. They just don't know any better, but they're professionals. They freak out Sam and Dean a little bit by saying, yeah, we know who you are too. Uh, They do. Are we that famous as hunters that you recognize us? Like, how do you know about us and who do we have to kill to get them to stop talking about us to people who put things on websites? Ed's like, amateurs. You're amateurs. And you're going to mess up our investigation or whatever by being here. And it's like, dude, God, just ask these guys for help. They know more than you do. <laughs> Dean asks if they've ever seen a ghost and Ed very dramatically tells them once. And tells them the story about how, well, they actually just heard a vase fall off a table. But yeah, it was a ghost. And so they leave and they go to investigate something actually worthwhile. While Ed and Harry bumble around in this house by themselves. Because Sam and Dean have found nothing there. One quick trip to the library later, Sam has the entire history of the property. And nobody by the name of Mordecai Murdoch has ever lived there. And the man, Mark Murdoch, who did live there, had two sons, not six daughters. There was never murders ever at the house. So the legend is entirely made up. Dean went to the police station, found no record of any body matching or any person matching the description of the supposed dead girl. So... At this point, there's nothing left for them to investigate. The whole thing was not true. And ghosts don't happen on not true information. They happen on to real people who actually die. Can't die if you never existed, right? So <laughs> the legend's not true. They decide, Dean's like, okay, yeah, let's just find a bar and leave the legends to the townspeople. Like, We're just going to move on, find something else to hunt because there's nothing here. So Dean gets in the car, turns it on, and the radio comes on full blast playing like salsa music or something. (laughs) And that's Sam's idea of a return prank over the spoon in the mouth incident. And the prank war escalates. Cut to three more teenagers or young people going up to the house after dark playing truth or dare, and one girl was dared to go into the house, down to the cellar, and retrieve one of the jars off the shelves. And if she refuses to do the dare, she's got to make out with one of the, with the guy in the group. And she's like, yeah, I'd rather face a murderous ghost. So she takes the flashlight. They all think it's kind of a, a lark. But remember, the hellhounds were there, so... They've all videoed this whole place up and put the story up on their website. And people are now beginning to believe in it. You know, other strangers are coming to the house who may have seen the story online and just are now using it to prank their friends with. Except 
again, the story has escaped its original confines and has moved out into the wider universe as something more real. This poor girl goes down to the cellar, has to unbolt the cellar door, goes down the stairs, picks up a jar. She hears several unsettling noises in the house that we hadn't heard before that seemed new. And as she picks up a jar, something frightens her and she drops it. She turns around and there is this large, scary looking guy with a rope who grabs her and strings her up from the rafters, just like the legend said, and just like hadn't happened before that we'd seen happen. But now all of a sudden, what had just been a story is now real and it really is happening and the police now do have a body to investigate and these friends aren't going to see it as a lark where nobody got hurt their friend went in they saw her go in and they saw her die this is very unsettling and terrifying to the town and all of a sudden what had just been a story is real the police who are investigating when Sam and Dean come back the next morning to check out what on earth is going on here after they found nothing in the house, the police are saying that the girl hung herself and they couldn't figure out why she'd done it because it wasn't her. It was Mordecai. Sam and Dean are convinced they must have missed something in the house. If, if now they do have like a real dead person, of course the hellhounds, Ed and Harry, I keep wanting to call them the ghost facers, but they're not called that in this episode. But if I call them the ghost facers, you know who I mean. So we're cool. Um, <laughs> they're still only taking it as seriously as any other investigation of theirs. Like they went in believing it was a ghost and that there was something to find, even if it, the thing they found was something that was created by the fact that they wanted to find something there and put it out on the internet as a story because they wanted to draw attention to it and themselves. So they're still not really taking it with the sort of gravitas that somebody who had lost their lives here. So Sam and Dean stake out the house the next night, except the police had the same idea. They didn't want any more kids going in there and, and getting hurt or tampering with the crime scene or whatever. But the police have still remained at the location after dark and Sam and Dean are trying to get inside. Except then the ghost facers come bumbling along with all of their tactical gear and their night vision goggles and everything else and flashlights go in and they're just bumbling along through the woods to the house. Dean decides to use them as bait for the police. Like if the police have to arrest Ed and Harry, then they'll be a good distraction so that Sam and Dean can get inside the house. <laughs> Poor things. Dean calls out, who are you going to call? And of course, the police all turn and see Ed and Harry being loud, well lit and bumbling and miss Sam and Dean hiding covertly in the shrubs nearby. So pays to actually know what the hell you're doing. Sam and Dean go down to the basement and Dean dares Sam to drink from one of the jars on the one of the shelves in there. And Sam's like, why? That's no. And Dean's like, I'll double dare you. 
And I think that's a play on the truth or dare girl who was dared to go into the house. Well, Sam and Dean are still playing their prank war, just like the first guy who made up the story in the first place. And now they're double daring each other, just like the second group of teenagers who approach the house. Sam and Dean hear a noise in a cupboard, carefully open a door thinking, oh no, this is the thing that we're here to hunt. And a couple of rats come running out. Sam asks Dean, after he says he hates rats, would you rather it was a ghost? And Dean's like, yes. And then as he says that behind him, Mordecai Murdoch appears with a hatchet and is about to swing it at him. So the rope is gone. The story has evolved. Why is suddenly this spirit different than the legend that you know ghosts aren't supposed to change their MOs like that? So as the story evolves, so does reality. This ghost is also, is he's immune to rock salt. Like they shoot him with their salt guns and almost nothing happens. They have to shoot him repeatedly to even just be able to get past him and get out, get up the stairs and out. They end up kicking the door down on their way out the front door and Mordecai Murdoch stops on the porch behind them because the limitations of his territory are dictated by that tulpa symbol and the stories surrounding him that he's trapped in that house. Meanwhile, Ed and Harry have evaded the cops, made it back, and are trying to sneak in with their night vision goggles, are standing right out front of the door when Sam and Dean come bursting through, and they see Mordecai Murdoch in the doorway behind Sam and Dean, and then they run for it. Right into the waiting arms of the cops. We flash back to the motel where Sam and Dean are staying, and it is amazing. The cow faces on their doors like everything is western themed the notepad has like a rope border around the edge of it all very very texas but man those cow the cow faces on their doors are just they're 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 creepy enough on their own man (laughs) the big googly-eyed cows i'll get a screenshot of it and put it in the post for this one because the cows are just too hilarious man Meanwhile, Dean's inside sketching out that symbol that he can't remember that it's the blue oyster cult symbol. And they're researching what they could have possibly missed here. What kind of spirit doesn't react to rock salt? It just doesn't fit in with any of their lore, with any of their stories about the supernatural. This thing is completely outside of any of the rules of the supernatural that they've ever heard. I need to take a moment and credit Jerry Wanick with this motel room because it's absolutely wild. At the headboards of each of their beds is this giant like longhorn steer rack. And as Gene's sitting in bed, it looks like, you know, the horns are coming out the sides of his head, but it also looks like an OSHA violation. It's like, God, if somebody tripped and fell as they were getting into bed, it's like right at face height where you just smack into the horn. It just seems like really bad hotel design, but perfect supernatural motel design. Like, every detail in this room is is wild. So the legend has changed enough, like, all of the details are now different. It's still Mordecai Murdoch, but now he uses an axe. He doesn't hang his victims. 
he didn't hang himself like he did in the original legend. Sam said he had slit wrists and this this ghost did and it was attacking them and apparently before it only ever attacked girls. So nothing about the story has changed except for the fact that this guy named Mordecai Murdoch kills people in his house. That's the only detail that's the same. Sam logs back into the Hellhound's Lair website to reread the story to see, to compare the details of the original story and what they actually just witnessed. And he encounters the new post that was just posted about Mordecai Murdoch that bears zero resemblance to the original, but complete resemblance to what they just experienced there with the with the axe and the Satanist murderer and and how he slid his own wrists. That's all on the most recent article about Mordecai on the Hellhound's Lair site. Sam's like, where are they going with this? And Dean said, I don't know, but I think I know where it started because he recognizes the symbol and has put it all together. Blue Oyster Cult, record shop dude, the uh, guy who originally told the story. And honestly, why they didn't think of talking to him and asking to talk to his cousin who told him the story supposedly before this is kind of shocking and probably because they a got distracted because it didn't seem like any of these facts were actually facts it seemed they couldn't find any basis for it in reality and b there didn't seem to be any actual supernatural activity in the house the girl who died there wasn't real that like nothing was real about this so there was no need to look into the original story until they experienced something vastly different but just as deadly so now it seems more important to figure out how this story got started in the first place and honestly it's like any fandom you have folks who were there from the start who knew the original lore and the creators who who created the original thing, then you've got people who come in much later and try and recount and retell what happened. But, you know, it's a game of telephone. You hear things second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth hand, and the story changes. Or you have somebody who comes in and deliberately tries to spice it up by saying things about it that aren't true, that never happened, that don't bear any even that much resemblance to the original story. I mean, it's basically fan fiction, right? That's what we all do. And all of a sudden you're telling stories about Dean in space and robots and stuff. So it's still rooted in the original story with some of the, just enough of the details to make it feel real, but it takes on a life of its own, just like the Tulpa and the story here except it has the power to actually alter their world in very material ways. Back at the record shop, they convince Craig to tell them the actual truth of the story, and he confesses that he and his cousin Dana made it up while she was visiting on break, which is why a description of her as a local who could have died there never came up because she was visiting from out of town. And they just decided it would be fun to create a little funny legend and, and prank their friends with it, except their friends told other people and those people told more people. And eventually the hellhounds showed up and put it on the internet. He just thought it was funny until all of a sudden it wasn't funny anymore when a 
a girl actually died, but he swears they just made it all up. None of it was real. He's clearly shaken up about what has happened because of this silly prank that he started just for a laugh. It was never supposed to escape like that, but he used the phrase, it took on a life of its own. And Sam and Dean leave, and Dean is like, if none of it's real, then explain Mordecai, because they saw him. He almost killed them, and he's immune to their weapons against spirits and everything else, so they have no idea where to start hunting that thing. The next morning in their motel room, Dean comes back in. We hear Sam in the bathroom, and he's talking through the door to Dean. Dean is sneaking around shaking itching powder into Sam's clothes as Sam is in the bathroom finishing up his shower and morning routine. But Dean has already been out and about buying itching powder, among other things probably. But Sam has hit on the potential that this is a tulpa because he recognized that symbol. And let's recall other times thought forms have been mentioned in the show in skin one of the tests, quote unquote, that Sam gave to fake Dean, shifter Dean, was a case that they'd hunted in Texas that turned out to be a thought form, not a tulpa, but a tulpa is a type of thought form. But it's kind of like for- foreshadowing to this, where they're also in Texas and they're hunting a thought form. But generally when tulpas or appear or are mentioned in the show, it's an associated with the themes of storytelling and what makes a story real and interpreting a story and changing a story. I just find that fascinating. The story in here is already changing again as Sam d- uncovers the reality that it was a tulpa. The story has already begun to change again. The question becomes, How do you nail down and eliminate a creature that is generated by people's belief in it? How would you even propose to stop that? How would you get people either to stop believing in it or to believe it into something benign enough that it doesn't need to be destroyed or believe it into something that can be destroyed? And of course, again, Dean is the one who doubts. He's the one who says, how can somebody just believing in something make it real? Sam's like, well, explains that with the power of the internet, that they've got thousands of people looking at their website and investing their belief in it because they're reading it because they want to believe in it. Dean's like, well, everybody believes in Santa Claus, but how come I'm not getting hooked up with presents? And without missing a beat, Sam's like, because you're a bad person. <laughs> and it's like, well, hmm, maybe somebody should just go paint a, a tulpa on the North Pole. Maybe that's how it works. <laughs> no, no tulpa symbol on Santa's uniform, unfortunately. Either that or I'm just a bad person, too. But yeah, Sam points out this the sigil that is generating the tulpa. But meanwhile, through this entire scene, Sam has got ants in his pants. He's can't sit still. He's really itchy. Dean is doing very well about keeping a straight face because, you know, he's the one who put the itching powder in Sam's clothes. And Sam is doing his best to maintain a straight face about explaining how the tulpa works and how that's generating 
the ghost of Mordecai. Unfortunately, the Hellhounds posted video of their encounter with Mordecai on their website. And since they did that, the hits on their website went through the roof, which means there's even more people generating energy towards creating Mordecai. As the legend changes on their website, as people believe different things about him, Mordecai changes to match. And now there's even more people believing in it. So even removing the tulpa symbol from the wall won't make Mordecai go away. The deed's been done. He exists now. I want to use the phrase from a much later episode, (laughs) season nine, when Sam is possessed by Gadriel and Dean is trying to get through to him. Kevin gives him a sigil to paint that will give him a few moments to talk to Sam inside of possessed Gadriel without Gadriel listening in. Gadriel obviously had overheard this and catches on and changes the sigil on the door so that when Dean activates it, he pretends he acts his role as if he was Sam hearing this information and knows his the gig is up. He can't pretend anymore. He's going to have to get out of there now. But it gives him just enough time to get Dean out of his way and get out of there and killing Kevin on his way out. But the phrase associated with that was alter the sigil, alter the spell. And it's sort of like exactly what's happening, but not with the sigil here, but with the language of what's generating. It's like almost like if the story that people are reading about Mordecai, all of the energy of their belief and their understanding of the words is like the spell that they're chanting to generate Mordecai. And he appears as what the most people believe and are funneling towards him. So just sheer belief is enough to change this world. As they get up from the table, Sam finally breaks and he's like, man, I think I'm allergic to my soap. And Dean just starts laughing. And Sam realizes that Dean, yes, Dean is the one who put itching powder in his clothes. So he's going to have to go change. We cut to the interior of Ed and Harry's Airstream where they're talking about Ed wants to go back into the house again to get more footage. Harry is just like, no, I do not want to go back in there. Ed is trying to encourage him saying this could be our ticket to the big time. You know, they want to become famous for this. And he is trying to talk Harry into going back inside before they can get into the details. Sam and Dean knock on their door because they have a, because they have a bit of strategic information to present. Sam and Dean start with their most basic logical argument that, Maybe it's a bad idea that they should probably shut this down because thousands of people are now reading about it and more people might come down there and get hurt. And Harry kind of agrees with them, except let's Ed talk him into, no, no, because we have an obligation to our fans and the truth. And it's just like, well, Deez, what bit of the truth did you actually post here? Aside from the fact that you made up a story about a thing. They're the ones who made up the more violent version of Mordecai. They made up that story entirely about him being a Satanist axe murderer. And then 
were victimized by it and nearly got Sam and Dean killed by it. So random citizen number three who goes into that house is probably not going to survive (laughs) because of their storytelling, not the truth, their made up story. God, in this day and age of 24-hour cable news that just reports anything as if it was true, I'm not even going to go into it here because, oh my God, that could become a whole podcast in its own. (laughs) But like by their reporting, they make things seem true. So what is the truth here, actually, Ed? But Sam and Dean are going to play their roles because they know that just appealing to these two guys better nature is pointless because they don't have one apparently but they know that if they tempt them with something that might be another juicy tidbit to update their story with mm, maybe they'll play along and so they're like well we'll give this to you but only if you promise not to print it or post it just promise you'll take the story down but we're going to give you this We found out the real truth about Mordecai. You can't post it. You can't tell anybody about it. So what if, what do the Ed and Harry do? Of course they agree because they want to know, but they also take the information that Sam gives them and post it. Except the moment they do their website crashes unbeknownst to Sam and Dean and to their detriment But of course, the story that Sam and Dean give to the ghost facers includes details about how to kill the spirit that if you shoot him with a 45 loaded with special wrought iron rounds, it'll kill him because he's afraid of those weapons specifically because that's how he killed himself. So he's not a murderer in that version of the story. He's just someone who shot himself. So makes it so that he will not attack them and will be vulnerable to the one weapon they intend to bring with them. So Sam and Dean wait for it to upload and for enough people to have read it for the legend to change and to change reality of the being haunting this building. They spend their time inside a little diner with a terrible wall plaque of a laughing fisherman holding a fish going it's really awful (laughs) I've only listened to it once and had to like pause to describe it but it's indescribably awful noise I think the only person who hates the noise this laughing wall plaque makes more than I do is Sam (laughs) Dean is just amused as hell just keeps pulling that string while Sam's watching and waiting for the Hellhounds Lair site to update. I also think it's hilarious that in the Hellhounds article that Dean reads, they described Sam and Dean as, quote, reputable sources. And I'm just like, wow, they went from amateurs who knew nothing. So even the Ed and Harry's opinion of Sam and Dean through this episode has changed and it's evolved how they think about them. They're not just some guys who there for a lark to try and spot a ghost or whatever they're quote-unquote reputable sources now so (laughs) i just i i love that every bit of the story evolves in every layer of the story in this episode 
Sam says it'll be by nightfall that the new legend will have to have had time to take it over and they should be able to go back and kill Mordecai now. They're relieved that, you know, they've accomplished the task and figured it out and solved the problem. And now all it's just a matter of waiting, except they go to they go to clink bottles together like Sam raises his beer bottle and a toast. Dean picks his up and clinks it. When they go to put it down, Dean's bottle is glued to his hand. <laughs> He's like, oh, you didn't. Dean, Sam holds up the crazy glue and is like, yep, I did. And Dean is now the one who is no longer laughing. And Sam's the one pulling the laughing fisherman cord and <laughs> laughing right along with it. So who the laughter is in the eye of the beholder, I guess. And the prank war continues. Later that night, out in the woods, to the two police officers staking out the the cabin overnight, hear something in the woods and go investigate, and it turns out to be that same laughing fisherman plaque. Their distraction had given Sam and Dean just enough time to sneak into the house to put an end to Mordecai. Sam and Dean make their way through the house with their guns drawn and their flashlights aimed around and... They're waiting for Mordecai to show his face so they can blow him away. They're like, where is he? Is you think he's home? And Ed and Harry answer. And they almost get blown away. Ed and Harry have their night vision goggles and they're aiming cameras. Sam and Dean have flashlights and they're pointing guns. Very, very different. So this is when they're confronted with the reality when Mordecai busts in and he's still got his axe and he's using it against them and trying to kill them. Dean's like, that BS story we gave you, you didn't post it. And they're like, yeah, but our server crashed. So it wasn't enough mental energy on the new story to change Mordecai into something they could kill. So their guns don't work. Nothing works. And they're now trapped in the house with Mordecai, who operates under the previous rules and can kill them with his axe. Not fun. Not, not fun. This is not a fun version of the story. Ed and Harry, I'm ashamed at you for writing such a terrible iteration of the story. I blame them. They're the ones who wrote the whole axe murderer, Satan worshiper, slit his wrists, death version of Mordecai and... Honestly, they should be ashamed. They just wanted a book and movie deal. So they wrote it up into something much more interesting and much more scandalous than the original version that they'd heard because that wasn't good enough or interesting enough or drawing enough attention or outrageous enough. So they made it sound more outrageous because if they could catch that guy on film, wow, we could have a book deal. (laughs) Don't worry, they'll eventually just make up a a monster out of whole cloth and just write a book about it without having to try and film it themselves. Saves uh, the trouble of it actually becoming real. And uh, then there's Chuck with his book deal that Sam and Dean get to confront him about and say, "Uh, no, please don't publish any more of those. We'll kill you. (laughs) Before they realize that, oh yeah, he was God all along and there probably wasn't anything we could do to stop him from publishing books about us. But we could actually try and stop him from writing our lives this way because he wasn't just a prophet recording the notes. He was the one dictating the story. He may not have been able to dictate the, you know, like 
in the tulpa, the creature itself, the story about the creature itself changes that creature. But everything it inter- that comes and interacts with it, that's acting on their own. So the tulpa doesn't have free will, but Sam and Dean do. They're, the way they interact with it, the way Ed and Harry interact with it, the fact that they were able to insert something that changed the story. The tulpa is just the plot device of the story. And gosh, I'm just going to give myself an aneurysm trying to put it into words, I think. But yeah, the characters in the story are all real except that one, except that tulpa. That's the only character in this story that's not real, except it's been brought into reality because the author created it and people read that story and they believed in it. Let's go back to the Hell House where Ed and Harry are become cornered by Mordecai with his axe and Sam comes in and distracts Mordecai and is like, yeah, come get me and gives Ed and Harry a chance to escape. But at his own risk, of course, because that's what Sam and Dean always do. They put themselves at risk. They can save other people, even morons who created this entire situation for themselves. Meanwhile, while Sam's wrestling with Mordecai, Dean's in the other room throwing lighter fluid on every flat surface he can and comes in with a uh, a spray can that he lights on fire and uses that to distract Mordecai from Sam so that Sam and he can escape. Mordecai, of course, is trapped inside the house because the legend never allowed him to leave the house. Nobody believes he can, so he can't. And they burn that sucker to the ground. So as Sam and Dean stand outside watching the house burn and contemplating if that was going to be enough to actually stop Mordecai, like, what if the legend changes and he's allowed to leave? Dean's like, well, we'll have to come back. But if he can't leave the house and there's no house left for him to haunt, problem solved. You know, it's probably not the best solution in every circumstance, but it's what they had available to them in that moment. And it was better than trying to get Ed and Harry to write one final story about explaining the truth in a way that would create belief that they could destroy it, the tulpa. Because if they hadn't done something right then and there, they were both probably going to get killed. So they had to do what they had to do. But it leads Sam to wonder while they're watching the house burn, of all the things we've hunted, I wonder how many of them only existed because people believed in them. And that's another theme that will run right through the end of the series. When we finally meet Fortuna, the goddess of good luck that Sam and Dean try and uh, have to track down to Alaska to play pool with her to win back their luck, quote unquote, that supposedly Chuck had removed from them. And I still don't believe it was about luck. It was about Chuck punishing them. But I'm not even going to talk about that at this point. I just want to talk about what Fortuna said about the gods, the the minor gods that came into existence after humanity did, that they only exist because people believed in them. People found aspects of divinity and prayed to them or thanked them or cursed them or whatever it was. But it was something that Chuck could allow other beings 
to take blame for rather than people blaming him for them as the actual creator of the universe in the version of this universe that's presented to us in this show. I don't know. I'm not getting into an actual real world theological discussion here. We're talking like nine layers of metaphorically deep inside this fictional television program. So house is gone. Problem solved. Tulpa dead, or at least vanquished in a way that it can't hurt anybody right now. So good enough for now. So Sam and Dean go to, say goodbye to Ed and Harry who are packing up their groceries and their Airstream trailer and they're getting ready to drive off to California because they had apparently been contacted by a Hollywood producer who wants them to, who read their story and read their blog and their investigation and want them to write a feature film about it and create a role-playing game about it. So it's just weird that we will see, like I already mentioned, Chuck in the books the supernatural books that we'll see later, but then the fans of that will create a role-playing game and they'll have like conventions of that. And then Marie will create a stage play and musical of it, but not quite a feature film, but (laughs) I've actually read fanfic of that concept of them making a feature film of the supernatural books and it becoming a case that Sam and Dean have to investigate. So Like, this concept already exists in fanfic. We didn't even need the show to put it forth for us to have grasped that, yes, this is where they were going with this sort of concept. So after Ed and Harry drive off, Sam says, I have a confession. I'm the one who called them claiming to be the producer. So this whole Hollywood deal that Ed and Harry are heading off to Los Angeles to follow up on doesn't even exist. It's not real. It's no more real than the story they made up for Mordecai Murdoch. Tulpa or no Tulpa, these guys are not getting a Hollywood production deal. (laughs) It's just no Tulpa that strong. But uh, as they pull away, as Sam confesses that, Dean confesses that, yeah, he's the one who put a fish in their back seat. So that's going to stink in a couple days. (laughs) <laughs> unless they find it. So, yee. <laughs> Not going to be a fun ride from Texas to California with a dead fish in your backseat. But it is enough for Sam and Dean to laugh together about having pranked someone else. So this episode begins on a prank and ends on a prank, except this time it ends on a content resolution because Sam and Dean are able to call a truce. Dean's like, yeah, for the next hundred miles. But, you know, they don't continue pranking each other in every episode of the entire series. Or, you know, honestly, I'd probably want want to kill both of them and be like, dude, God, get over it. That was cute once, but Jesus, you know, (laughs) like I would not have continued to watch the show if it became prank war show after prank war show. That just is not interesting. And I think they realize it's not interesting. And they have better stories to tell. So that's Hell House. Not bad for a one-and-done writer and director team. That this was their only episode. It's really hard to imagine that so much of the foundation of Supernatural's big questions about the universe came from a one-and-done team. The 
just meta nature of the tulpa as a monster in general and as a concept in this universe that future authors will take to entirely new levels throughout the series is just mind-boggling when you think about it that all of this was just a one-off episode and yet the concepts in it are just essential to the series the what do we believe and how does that change reality and the stories we tell and what we write and what people who in, read it interpret it as and how does that change the story that as it really exists and is there a way that it quote unquote really exists because all of this was based on just a joke a prank that some guy tried to play it on his friends and it just went way beyond what they ever thought it would and honestly isn't that supernatural in a nutshell right there? <laughs> I mean, it didn't start as a prank, but it started as this little series that was supposed to be about two brothers fighting urban legends in in rural America. It wasn't supposed to be this huge show about confronting the nature of reality and God himself and our place in the universe and what is free will and the power of love to overcome all of it and it's just wow the thing is we as an audience made that happen in a way because we stayed around to watch it all unfold they wouldn't have kept making it if there wasn't an audience there to receive it but they're the ones who always retain control of the story they're the ones who kept telling the story the way they did that kept us engaged with it, that kept people watching for 15 seasons. And it didn't change the nature of the story. Our engagement with, it's just such a unique thing in the world that the level of engagement that Supernatural fandom has had with Supernatural is not common. It's not, it's, completely unique in my experience that you know there's other fandoms that are just as intense and involved or whatever but this fandom the way the relationship that we've had to the show and the show has had with us writing fans into the story like in canon not actual individual fans but like fandom in general as a concept and using fictional fans to tell stories in this show, it's just mind-boggling that all of it came from episodes like this in the very beginning that said, hey, look, this show might be something more. And yeah, I say that started back in faith when they started confronting the nature of life and death and the first time that Dean defied death by being healed and granted a second chance at life that they began to rewrite their stories. And then in the end, Death herself, as Billy, would reveal that everybody has their fate written in a book. And the books can change based on your choices, based on how you live your life. Those books can change. Your fate's not written in stone. It's written on paper, and it can be edited, just like the Tulpa could be edited. Like, 
the characters in this story had the power to edit their own stories, to make them their own, except Chuck, the author, kept trying to write them into the corners that he wanted them to reside in. And in the end, the ultimate victory of this show should have been these characters. I mean, they did get their chance to say it right to Chuck's face as his own book disappeared from his ability to view it. They should have said, yeah, these are our stories. We get to tell these stories and we get to be in control of our own lives. And you don't get to keep messing with them and trying to destroy our lives at every turn. And they should have been able to reclaim what they had lost in those last few episodes. All of their lost friends and loved ones that sacrificed themselves or were willing to sacrifice themselves to help Sam and Dean and Jack defeat Chuck. And even Jack himself was lost in, in all of this. And it's just like... What's the point if they didn't get their own lives in the end that they never were able to rewrite their final books of fate that they still ended up living out Chuck's written orders for their lives. And it's just disappointing. Ultimately, at this point, like eight months on or whatever it is now, it's just disappointing. Like there was so much potential and it just was all squandered for what it doesn't even it it's just so utterly disappointing and it lacks entirely in any sort of creativity like no (laughs) I'm sorry I just can't with it so honestly I don't know how you can go back and rewatch this episode and just not be pissed at the finale like really okay I mean, I say that about every episode that I've rewatched from season one so far. Like, how could they have done that? Like, it makes no sense. (laughs) It will continue to make no sense for the rest of time. But, you know, I still got to mention it or I wouldn't be doing this podcast, I suppose. Anyway, so we've touched on the nature of the character's relationship to reality and the universe. Next week, we will be digging a little bit back into their pasts. We will have our very first flashback episode to their childhood. Season one, episode 18, something wicked. It gives us a lot of insight to Sam and Dean, the responsibilities that John laid on Dean, why Dean feels the way he does about John and his care for Sam and his feelings of responsibility and guilt and his feelings of being a failure that he's give being feels like he's being given a chance to redeem himself from one personal failure, except it really should never have been his responsibility in the first place. But we'll talk about that next week, which is interestingly enough directed and written by another one and done pair. So there's a lot of really good episodes in season one that were just one-offs and it's just like wow why didn't you ever invite any of these people back they did good jobs (laughs) but uh yeah they were still building the staff building the writing team I guess they were tulping them into existence too but yeah so I guess that's it for this week that was pretty short compared to last week all things considered um (laughs) 
I expected to actually talk longer about this episode, but there you go. Anyway, you can always find me on Tumblr at spngeorge or at mittensmorgle. And if you have any questions about this episode or any other episode, I'm always happy to discuss them with you either on Tumblr or if you'd like to join the Discord server, you're welcome to do that. Uh, we'll just message me on Tumblr and I'll send you an invite. Or you can email me at mittensmorgle at gmail and I will be happy to talk to you there as well. Anyway, have a lovely week and don't invent monsters with tulpa symbols that you really don't want to see in this world. Use that power for good. <laughs> like trying to reimagine the series finales. Like you're welcome to paste tulpa symbols all over the fix it fic I wrote for the series finale. Happy to have that one come true. Uh, <laughs> and any number of other authors who wrote fix it fix for the series finale, man, I've read some really good ones. So any number of those, I'm also happy for you to tulpa. Just use the tulpa responsibly. That's all I ask.